Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger here in Aotearoa. And in this podcast, I chat to a diverse bunch of people. I learn their story and I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and their point of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. I managed to cross paths with 35-year-old Danny because both of us are runners and seeing the trails that she was enjoying, it always inspired me to lace up my own shoes and head out the door for a trot. It's probably no surprise that when I found out that she was also navigating her own path to fire or financial independence retire early, that I became even more curious and I asked her to chat with me. Now both of us love nothing better than using our time on the trails to absorb money-related podcast content. And this very podcast, which she said she likes to think of as Storytime with Ruth, it has kept her occupied for hundreds of kilometres by now. Danny, I'm sure it's going to be pretty weird heading out for a run and hearing your own story told. But I hope you enjoy it. And I hope this episode is the perfect length for your run today. Now, before I jump into it though, I've just got a quick message about Pocketsmith, today's sponsor. Having a side hustle or running a business can be profitable, rewarding, and take it from me, actually pretty fun. But if I don't keep up with the admin side of the Happy Saver, it can quickly get a bit out of control. So I use Pocketsmith to easily keep track of multiple income streams. Pocketsmith links to my side hustle bank account and keeps track of my fluctuating income and expenses. So at a glance, I can see if I'm running at a profit or a loss for the month and year, the invoices that have been paid, and I can calculate the tax I need to set aside. It helps me keep good records to monitor my business and it just takes me a few minutes a week to manage. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, then I've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. For the record, Danny is not her real name. She wanted to remain anonymous today. Plus, although she does have a partner, she asked that I keep their details to a minimum, which is no problem at all. Danny grew up in one of the most stunning regions of the Motu, which is Motueka. It's an area well known for its horticulture, and she lived with three generations of her whānau on a large orchard. It has been handed down through the generations, and her dad is the current custodian of it having taken it over from his parents. She said that her dad and mum really got a jump start in life when they took over the running of the property and moved into one of the homes on it. There was no mortgage to pay, but there was pressure to keep the family business profitable and productive for future generations, which is no mean feat in agriculture. And while she knows she had an excellent start in life, Danny does recall times of money stress when weather events such as hailstorms or flooding smashed their crops. There were years that were productive and awesome, followed by years that were not so good, which is the nature of farming of any type. It's an extremely tough industry to be in, with your outcomes so reliant on Mother Nature. It did sound like a fantastic place to grow up, surrounded by family and free reign to explore the outdoors, either roaming around the farm with her siblings and friends or getting involved in local sports, something that she really loved to do. Although money lessons were not really talked about much at home, Nothing much beyond the save some, spend some principles, working hard was pretty well encouraged. There is never any shortage of work to do on a rural property, and most people I meet who come off a farm have no choice but to learn a good work ethic. It's pretty much forced upon you as soon as you are old enough 
to get out of the ute by yourself and open and shut the gate for mum or dad. Danny recently found an old payslip from when she was young. Her job was to sweep out the fruit packing shed for an hour after school every day, for which she got paid $5. From an early age, she always had a part-time job of some sort, so she always had money coming in, but was never much good at saving, she said, something that she remembers used to frustrate her mum. The dairy, with its 50-cent lolly mixtures, always beckoned her, or she would find a toy that she liked, find out how much it cost, and then save up her money until she had just enough and could buy it. Her sister, she said, was the opposite, always good at spending with more caution and setting money aside for the future. She was the sibling who would always have some Easter eggs six months after Easter had passed. A lot of her pay came in cash form, so without innate wisdom, like her sister seemed to have, or an adult helping her to direct her money, as soon as she received it, she spent it. She was living paycheck to paycheck as a 10-year-old. However, she did do school banking, where once a week she would take a gold coin to school and they'd bank it for her. She couldn't touch this money, it was out of the way, and she got a tiny taste of what the habit of saving is like. Given that Danny is now a secondary school teacher, there is a lesson there, she said, to teach your kids from a young age that investing a portion of your income is normal and expected, and you need to show them how to do it, and then make sure it happens. Starting young is key so that you can make those habits stick. When I hear people like Danny tell me that they were, quote, never good at saving, like it was some personal failing, I always think that it's just that they were never taught, and as Danny has gone on to work out, Thankfully, it's a skill you can learn at any age. When she finished school, she did what a lot of young adults did and still do. She went to uni because all of her friends were going, and leaving her small town and moving to a bigger city, in her case Dunedin, so that she could study at Otago University, is a rite of passage in a way. It's a great life experience and your first step into life on your own terms. Her mum had been encouraging Danny to set a bit of her income aside for uni, and her parents had saved up a little money, about four to $5,000, which helped pay for the Hall of Residence accommodation in her first year. A year or two into her study, she also applied for and won a Teach New Zealand scholarship, which paid her fees for the last three years of study. Plus, they gave her $10,000 in cash. The conditions of the scholarship were that you had to go back to a rural area to teach. Danny spent five years at university all up, doing a BSc in PE or physical education and a Bachelor of Teaching, giving her the skills she would need to be a secondary school PE teacher. Now nearing the end of her time at uni, she had a mismatch of papers left to do, so she used the Teach NZ $10,000 to move to Canada for seven to eight months. And while there, she had a great time and, thankfully, completed those papers she needed online so that she could finish up her courses. While at uni, and as her teaching skills began to develop, she did lots of relief teaching at preschools and kindergartens around Dunedin, if and when she could fit it around her study. It was well paid, she said, and it helped with her living costs. Every summer she worked hard, working for outdoor adventure companies near her hometown during the day, and stocking shelves at the supermarket at night. This income went some way to pay her bills during the year, but it wasn't enough, so she did take on student loans too, borrowing money to pay for the fees that were not covered by her scholarship, her living costs and study material costs. She did try to keep her loans as low as she could. The courses she chose were expensive, but all up, the scholarships were a huge help as they covered about $40,000 of fees in the end, leaving her with a total student loan debt of around $35,000 after five years of study. That is $7,000 per year of study, which is nowhere near as bad as it could have been, 
And I think it shows what paying attention, looking for opportunities to help you, working and earning, if and when you can, and planning can do. I asked Danny what her thoughts were about her experience with tertiary education, given that she is teaching tamariki who might be planning to do something similar. She thinks that having the first year of uni being fees-free means a lot of people who shouldn't go to uni go, because what do they have to lose? It's no fees. You might as well give it a whirl. But it does mean that some who are going to uni won't last, and they have to learn the hard way that university might not be for them. But for others who put a lot more thought into their education after finishing school, this first year of no fees is a huge benefit to them and it's a good thing. In regards to working while you are studying, it's a fine line between making the most of being a student and enjoying the experience that studying full-time brings. Studying and getting an education becomes a job in itself, but the whole university experience for most is only going to happen once. So you don't want to work yourself into the ground to keep debt low and not enjoy the social side of uni, she said. Some friends were working full-time while doing part-time uni. Others focused on uni and didn't want to be distracted by a job. Some were able to live at home while they studied, which was a huge advantage worth taking in her view. But Danny said, uni is cruisy really, and you can get a part-time job in most cases. With the ability to study online being so much more available now, you really should be able to work a bit. Plus, it helps to have some work experience that you can show employers when the time comes to apply for work after your study ends. So it's individual for each person, she said, and there is not a lot she would change about her own experience because despite the big debt she ended up with, she had a great time and her education has led to her career. Getting your first job out of uni is the hardest. When she graduated, she had to apply at rural schools to meet the terms of her scholarship. Within five years of graduating, you had to spend three in a rural school, otherwise she would have to pay it back. She applied at 30 to 40 schools with no result and had to send proof that she tried to the government department in charge of the scholarship. Danny really wanted to teach at a rural school, but a lot of those small schools are one or two teacher shows and they didn't want a new grad. She got to the point where she was getting rejection after rejection and with the new school year looming, she began indiscriminately sending out CVs and finally, she secured a job in a much larger Lower North Island school. That Canadian stint detailed on her CV, it caught the attention of a Canadian member of staff, and that point of difference got her noticed. In 2010, aged about 22 or 23, she started teaching at last. It was quite a culture shock to move to a big city and teach in such a large school. She still tried to secure a position in a rural school, and for five years, she had to track her applications as evidence that no school wanted her. Finally, the government let her off the hook and that scholarship scheme has since been disestablished. And hopefully Danny's ego has been rebuilt from those years of rejection. She's gotten quite settled into big city living too and is now a fully functioning and I'm sure now sought after teacher. From here, a new phase of dealing with money began to evolve and it was in keeping with when she swept out the pack house shed she kept spending all her money as soon as she got it, only now the amounts of her financial commitments were a lot bigger. Thinking back, she thinks she had a savings account at the bank, but there was no concept of paying yourself first. After her bills were paid and fun was had, what was left over went into that savings account with the idea that one day she would like to buy a house. 
but there was no timeline on it and no numbers behind this thought. Part of the reason was that when she moved to the North Island, she had the mindset that she would not be there very long and a return south was inevitable. Therefore, she might as well enjoy it to the max while she was there. But life had other plans and she met her partner who had a young child who was very much entrenched into that part of the country. All his whānau and connections are there, meaning, she said with a laugh, that there was not much chance of leaving once she met him. Less than six months after getting together, he decided that it was better that they buy a home together and not rent. She said that they kind of fell into house buying without any real plan behind it, and in hindsight, she was far too passive in this process. He had good reasons in his own life for needing to buy a home, and Danny was swept along with it. With the most simplistic of math, they thought that owning was cheaper than renting, falling into that trap of only looking at rent payment versus mortgage payment. Of course, there is a lot more to it than that. He had been in the workforce a few more years than her and had a stable job, a good income and an accessible superannuation fund and was able to put more money into the deposit than Danny. She didn't have much to contribute, maybe $5,000 in savings and $4,500 from her KiwiSaver that had built up from her two plus years of full-time work. In order to make up the 20% deposit that the bank wanted, she stumped up the money she could and he covered her for the $8,000 that she was short. They talked it over with a lawyer and created a 50-50 ownership agreement, plus she would pay him back the $8,000. In 2012, they purchased a house for $310,000, and it was a great first home, she said. They kept their finances separate, and still do to this day, and they developed their own independent systems of covering their individual expenses and their shared costs. Neither was privy to what the other was doing, and both thought it was rude to ask, which beggars belief given that they now own a joint asset together and they live together. Danny kept living paycheck to paycheck, buying, she said, lots of stupid stuff and frittering money away one week at a time. Because her previous rental had been fully furnished, she had lots of fun buying stuff for their new home, and she paid back the money she owed him in large part through purchasing stuff for their house. After four years, and she said in a classic yet full-on keeping up with the Joneses move, they decided they wanted to upgrade. So they sold this property in 2016 for $323,000. She thinks of this as her greatest financial mistake. The step up in property increased their mortgage and they purchased a brand new home for $520,000 that same year in a suburb much further away from both of their workplaces. It was around this point when Danny, who was still spending all the money that came in, had her very first, holy shit, I don't think I can afford this moment. The upgrade in home was managing to suck up all of her disposable income, leaving her no money left over. Now, I love these moments that people have. I think we all need to physically feel the discomfort of having one to make us act. And in my experience, it's the most inane thing that often sets people off. And in Danny's case, her tipping point was curtains. They keep separate finances and they often divide up purchases. She was put in charge of buying new curtains for their new home. And despite her earning $80,000 a year by this stage, she could not afford to pay for the $4,000 curtains and the only way that she could see to solve this problem was to get a credit card. So that's what she did. When her first statement arrived and she saw her $4,000 purchase and the 18% interest rate, she both panicked and cried. She thought that the interest needed to be paid monthly, that is 18% of $4,000 each and every month, 
and was terrified that she was going to default in the very first month. She rang the bank and the very patient man explained how the interest worked and that it applied annually. Although she was out of the fire and back into the frying pan for a moment, this was her moment. This was her wake-up call. Why, she asked herself, does she feel so out of touch with no sense of control over her own money? Her new curtains, her new credit card, her new sense of panic coincided beautifully with the April school holidays. Within five days of getting the credit card and her fabulous curtains, which despite the pain she still loved, by the way, she hit the library. She thought, I can't live like this. She had been thinking about her money problems at work, working herself into a panic and realised that my money situation should not be affecting me before I walk into a classroom to teach. At the library, she just started reading anything she could find on personal finance. She found a budgeting software tool called YNAB, almost went mad trying to work out how to use it, and eventually managed to plug in all her expenses and her income. Using a budgeting tool was a game changer for her. The numbers didn't lie, and seeing it all in black and white and staring her in the face, it showed Danny that she was clearly living beyond her means. She couldn't deny her reality that this is what was happening. One of the first books she read in that first trip to the library was The Total Money Makeover by American author Dave Ramsey. He was the first resource that gave her simple action points. The first is to set aside $1,000 in case of emergency. The second was to pay off all of your debts like your hair is on fire, excluding the mortgage which you will aggressively attack soon enough. He proposed that she line up all her debts, smallest to largest, irrelevant of the interest rate. She added up her debts. She had her student loan, which had been getting paid down due to the automatic 12% deductions coming out of her fortnightly paycheck, plus some haphazard extra payments made along the way, plus that life-changing credit card, a car loan, and her half of the mortgage. She decided to get her crap together and pay them all off, she said. That $4,000 credit card was first. Thankfully, she had received enough of a fright that the only transaction on that card outside of interest was the curtains, and these curtains remain one of her greatest financial flops. Having to get a credit card to get curtains because she had overextended herself and her mortgage had a cascading effect, which took its own time to play out, but she cut back her spending in other areas and pushed all that money to this debt and paid it off in full as fast as she could. Paying off those curtains was hugely satisfying and she could breathe a bit better knowing that it was done. The student loan was the next debt and she directed all of her money to that and she smashed it out too. In reality, it only had a year to go anyway, but getting it paid off far sooner was extremely motivating. I'm a big believer in smashing out your student debt as fast as you can, because just as Danny has explained, life only gets more complicated and we start to layer up new debts. My view is contrary to many who believe that because it is interest-free, you should keep it as a millstone around your neck for eternity. In fact, can I just pause this episode for a moment to commend a person I know of in Dunedin who, having studied in his 20s, is about to celebrate becoming student debt-free at the age of 53. Yes, 30 years of subscribing to the view that it's no trouble at all to have a student loan, despite it taking 12% of every paycheck he has ever received. This lingering debt and the subtle yet unmeasurable pressure of knowing it is there it finally got under his skin, and in a genius move, he has decided that 2022 is the year to get rid of it. 
But back to Danny, who thankfully was having her own light bulb moment. Then she paid off her $8,000 car loan. What's with borrowing money to buy a car, I asked her. Well, her previous car had a mechanical fault on Boxing Day. So what's a person to do when the mechanics are all closed? Well, you buy a new car, of course. You might as well, on finance. Happy New Year to you. She summed this experience up very succinctly by saying, the car loan was a stupid decision. Sorry, Danny, I can't disagree with you there. Originally, she thought this debt had an early repayment penalty, meaning that if you pay it off faster, they will charge you more. She rang them up to clarify this charge, only to find out that she was actually wrong. It would cost her nothing to pay it off early. So she set about doing that too. Twice, Danny has picked up the phone to seek clarification, and it is an excellent way to get an immediate answer to your question. So all up, it took Danny about one year to clear those three debts and also build up an emergency fund of $10,000. This takes incredible discipline, but clearing those debts one at a time gives you focus, and it's a very good system to use. I was interested to know what conversations she was having with her partner throughout this time, because although their money is completely separate, surely he must have been watching all this change in her from the sidelines. She said that from the beginning, they had always been quite private about their own financial situations. She had never asked him about the loans he had, although she suspected that he had some car loans, and her view was that if he was comfortable sharing, then he would have told her already. She said that it took her ages to work out how to use YNAB, and in response to voicing her frustrations, he said, God, if it's that hard to use, you just don't need it. Danny said he was dismissive about it, so she just went about doing it on her own. And because she is tenacious and persistent, she stuck with it until she got it clear in her head how it worked. But although she couldn't articulate why she was doing this, and he probably couldn't fathom why she was suddenly so focused on her putia, he was quietly watching her progress nonetheless. When she was well on the way to getting her debts cleared and had a much greater grasp on where her money was coming from and going to, she was tested financially when she needed an urgent $5,000 surgery. Because of the mahi or the work she'd been putting in, she had $5,000 available to pay the bill in full. Just 12 months earlier, it would have been a whole different story and she would have had to ask her parents or her partner to borrow the money and that does not sit well with most adults. She said that him seeing things like that, it slowly got him on board and about a year after she had her own light bulb moment, he started to get his crap together too, she said. He didn't want to feature in this podcast at all, hence the lack of details, but he asked her quite a poignant question. If she could recommend just one book, what would it be? And it was the same book that motivated her, The Total Money Makeover. So he got it out of the library, he read it, and he brewed on it for a while, and then he started asking Danny questions. Because she was a year ahead of him, she was the perfect person to talk to. Finally, he shared with her how much consumer debt he owed, and it was a much higher figure than she was expecting. And he said, I'm going to pay it off. His strategy was to work more and pursue career growth and a higher income. And once he was on board with it, he was more all guns blazing than Danny. But still, because of the level of debt, it took him about two years to completely rid himself of all consumer debt, which is a fantastic achievement. While I was writing up this next section, I found myself literally staring out the window, scratching my head while I pondered the question of why she felt she couldn't talk to her partner about money from the start. 
What's the big deal about talking about money? Why is it such a taboo topic, for goodness sake? Thinking about all the other things you share in a relationship that are a lot more intense than this, how could she put herself into a financially vulnerable position by going into home ownership with him and not ask more about his financial life beyond, can you make the mortgage payment each month? Danny said she was a private person. She didn't even tell her parents that she had bought a house because she knew she had rushed into it and it could all blow up in her face. She was embarrassed to have rushed headfirst into the situation and that she had done something potentially wrong. She didn't tell her parents for two years, telling them instead that she was renting until her mum finally worked it out because mums are very good like that. Here's the thing. She knew that if she asked him to divulge, she would have to divulge her finances too and she didn't want to put herself in that position. When they got their lending in place, the mortgage broker had touched around the edges of what they both have, but it focused more on what they both had, not what they already owed. And she remembers going into that meeting being curious about whether she would find out what he actually owed, but it was not covered. And I get it, getting him to put all his cards on the table would make Danny have to do the same. And that, I guess, is a way to kill the vibe of a new relationship. But knowing what she knows now and having been with her partner a long time, what advice would she give to a new couple in regards to having a conversation about money? It's pretty easy. You have to have that conversation. You have to be able to talk about it, to build trust and move forward so that you can build upon that foundation. And also so that if something goes wrong, you know where you're at. Had they split up, it would have been a right mess because neither knew the other situation. And she wants you to have the confidence to have that conversation about money a little and often. Nothing massive and formal, it's not the Spanish Inquisition, but allowing yourself to be curious about the other person's situation and being willing to share your own. Until they started talking, the topic of money was hard, but now they are an open book with each other. And even if there is a disagreement about money, at least they are talking about it. And it's been that way since around 2018 when he got on board. Prior to their money shake-up, they were kind of looking to move so that her stepson could attend a closer school. Plus, Danny had moved to a new school and the commute had increased. She was looking to cut that down. Now that they had this shared understanding of where they were going, downsizing the house and reducing their mortgage meant that in mid-2019, they sold their second home for $690,000 and they purchased a two-bedroom townhouse for $590,000. Their mortgage was reduced by $90,000 down to $373,000, meaning that they can put more of their payments towards the principal and reduce the debt faster. Plus, they have saved on commuting costs because now she can bike to work and he can walk to public transport, making their lifestyle better all round. She said it has been an excellent decision for them. I wondered how much debt they now have and how they pay for it and how they structure their money in general. They have a shared expenses account where they each put $330 each fortnight and that covers insurance and food and electricity, internet, sky and what have you. Everything that they use that is shared comes out of that. And in regards to their mortgage, they bank with ANZ and each have a direct debit out of their own personal bank account into their mortgage account, which she said also has a redraw facility. The money sits there and moves onto the mortgage balance on the day that it is due. It is all automated, so there is nothing required to make sure that it happens, although she does check in to see that everything is operating as it should. Their current balance owing has reduced to $265,000, 
meaning that she is responsible for half of that, or 132,500. He in particular, although Danny is on board with this, is very motivated to get rid of the mortgage ASAP. Such a bloke thing. A bit rubbish with your money for so very long, and then you go not overboard, but very aggressive with your payments. But they have discussed paying off the mortgage faster than the average with a mortgage broker, and she gave them a timeline to pay it off and a payment schedule, and Danny and her partner have had a lot of conversations about what they are doing. He is paying the max that he can pay, $1,200 a fortnight, and she said she will match that which, while very doable, is more of a stretch for her because she earns $30,000 less a year than him. They refixed their mortgage in April of 2022 at 5% interest for a five-year term, meaning that in 2027, when she is 40, they will be debt-free. It sounds like a great plan to me, and I love the simplicity of it. Because they both have very stable jobs, there is little chance of big sums of cash coming their way or huge bumps in pay. So having the stable payment coming out each fortnight works really well for both of them and the bank. Danny is currently earning $104,000 a year before tax, plus a little more if she takes on extra roles. She will be taking a pay cut in the near future as she gives up one role where her salary will drop by about $7,000. I didn't run the math, but she said her mortgage payment takes 44% of her pay. So this leaves her wiggle room to do other things with her money too. And for her, that is to also invest. She is using the share market to invest as much as she can. And this had her parents worried. When Danny started to become more financially literate herself and mentioned to her parents that she is now a share market investor, they had a few stories to tell her about the New Zealand share market crash of 1987, which happened to be the year she was born. Her dad, even all these years later, was worried for his daughter. He mentioned that her granddad used to love to dabble in the stock market, and he also bought risky investments like a racehorse. He encouraged Danny's parents to invest during the 1980s, and as a result, like hordes of Kiwis, they lost money in that crash. It's really worth reading up on the 1987 share market crash. It was a crazy time in history for our country, and given what went on, I'm not surprised that a lot of people lost a lot of money. Now, Danny won't be taking the same investment approach as her family did, and she is working on a plan to become financially independent early in life and make having to work optional. She has signed up to KiwiSaver in the Simplicity Growth Fund with a 4% employee contribution. I think her employer, which is the government, is only doing 3%. Her current balance is $80,000, which is a fantastic amount given her young age of 35. She has a SmartShares Total World Fund where she invests $200 a month and has a current balance of about $15,000. She finds SmartShares off-putting because she can only invest once a month with them on the 20th. Plus, they take your money from your bank account and don't issue your units until a few days into the new month. And I absolutely agree with her that this lag period is really frustrating. And it was because of this delay that she went looking for an alternative and joined provider SuperLife where she has a growth fund where she invests $570 a fortnight and she has a current balance of about 50 grand. It's worth pointing out that both Superlife and SmartShares are actually sister companies. Both are owned by the NZX and I wonder if either of them will ever finally upgrade their services. She also has an account with Sharesies where she invests into the SmartShares US 500 
but given you are buying it via sharesies, your transactions are immediate. This is where any side hustle money goes, and she currently has about $5,000 invested. And when I asked what she would do with a cool 10 grand if it landed in her bank account unannounced, she said that it would go straight into these investments, all of it. And that tells me that she is working her financial plan. All her other bases are covered, and with no immediate use for this money, the obvious place to put it is into her investments. Nice job, Danny. She also uses Rabobank to hold her $10,000 emergency fund. This money just sits there as cash if, oh, I don't know, her car breaks down on Boxing Day perhaps, and she needs to replace it in a hurry. Getting the balance of her investments over $100,000 is one of her greatest financial triumphs. It made her feel rich, she said, and it gave her a real sense of satisfaction to reach and then exceed this goal. But she said that her mind is already well ahead of where her account balance is as she strives for more. Now, with $150,000 already invested, she is just adding to them and watching them grow over time. Her investments are on autopilot, and she is in the phase where she has done all the hard stuff, the setting it up, and now it's time to be patient and just keep at it. I was still curious about their shared future, couldn't let it go, given that they remain so independent financially. I explained to Danny that Johnny and I combined our finances soon after moving in together, after one too many strenuous mass sessions standing at the Kilburnie Pack and Save in Wellington, where we struggled to split the bill into two even payments. To me, combining your money comes from both a practical perspective and a relational one. They appear to be two individuals heading in the same direction, so why not just combine the two? The reason is that I shouldn't use the lens that I look at my own life through to look into theirs as well. They have a different situation to me, namely because he has a child that she is a step-parent of, and it's her view that all of his money should go to his child if and when the time ever came. Plus, she shared with me that her own situation opened up a conversation with her own parents. They divorced some time back and have each gone on to have new partners, meaning that they too are step-parents to adult children. Therefore, they too have conversations about legacy planning themselves, and of course, given that they want their whanau to continue to be owners and custodians of their family land, they need to figure out how that will work with these changing family dynamics. Added to this, she is watching her late 50s mum moving closer to retirement and struggling to prepare for it financially, and she said that without a doubt, this has influenced the way Danny views her own money, and it has influenced why she remains so fiercely independent. Without really even thinking about it, it has made her want to have a backup plan, just in case she were to end up in the same position herself one day. Plus, she knows the more financially able she is, the more able she will be to support her whānau if needed. Hearing more about this made me understand more than ever why Danny and her partner have created the financial situation that they have, and as long as they keep talking about what they both hope to achieve, and they get the legal advice and support they need, then all parties have a foundation to build upon. She is confident in her own financial future and that it will get her to where she wants to go, even if she ended up on her own. And she said they often talk about what would happen if they split up because separation can wreck financial plans. They have quite a strong vision of what they want their future to be as individuals and together. As individuals, they want different things. He wants to be near his family, which is near to where they currently live. And because her family has been on their farm for three generations, she sees her future there. So, 
In 10 years, they want to sell the house and each take their half. With hers, she wants to build on the family land. He wants to buy a house that he will then rent out. That way, if they split, they have a home each and his child's legacy would be protected. It worries me that this could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Their intention is to have a home base and then, because his child will be away from home and independent by then, they want to travel the world together, spending long periods of time in different places, which does sound pretty cool to me. So both are wanting to reach a point within 5-10 to years to have enough money invested to make work optional. In fact, at the moment his plan is to retire earlier than her, which he is on track to do, and both are devising their own strategies for making it work. In the meantime, they are in a loving and committed relationship, and they each go about their lives making the most of every day. As I mentioned, Danny is a runner, and she picked up this hobby at about the same time the credit card panic was happening. It coincided with the prospect of her having to pay $600 in fees for her chosen sport, and she couldn't afford that cost. Running was free, so she laced up her shoes and ran out the front gate instead. As she became more conditioned to it, she found that she really enjoyed it and that she could listen to podcasts and learn while running. She started entering races to give herself a target to aim for and talked her partner into going with her for weekends away so that she could run in an event and he could relax. Danny said that running has taught her lots of things to help with her money. Consistency and patience are the two key things. If you run consistently, she realized how much more she looked forward to runs because her fitness was building. And it was the same with money. If you are patient, consistent, and you build a habit, your personal finances build upon themselves. Recently, she wanted to try using a run coach, the trouble being that this would cost her $30 a week, and she was worried about finding the money. She was contemplating reducing her investment amount by $30 a week to cover it, and a chance comment from me encouraged her to just earn more money instead because all she needed was $30 a week. She already had a side hustle bubbling away in the background, and that is to do transcription for a company called Rev, which is R-E-V. She discovered it when she first got into paying down debt. She logs into their system, listens to an audio clip, and writes it out for the client. They pay in US dollars, but the pay rate works out to be about $20 New Zealand an hour, depending on the exchange rate. A couple of hours a week doing this, plus selling some unwanted stuff on TradeMe, would more than pay for her run coach. She also picks up extra work doing exam paper marking for the NZQA, so between these small gigs, the extra money is there for the taking. And I love that instead of thinking, what can I cut? She instead thinks, what can I grow? And the coach is going great, by the way, although it sounds as if they might need to start to teach some navigation skills, as she recently mentioned that she got a little bit misplaced in the hills around her home while out on a recent run. Working as a teacher is darn hard work, and it is relentless too. So this job might not be forever. Teaching will be something she sticks to for the next 10 years though, up until her estimated early retirement age of 45. From that point, she would like to move into some form of relief teaching because it is super flexible and you can work from anywhere. And each month she is plugging her numbers into her spreadsheet and tracking her progress towards her goal. So when I asked Danny what was one piece of advice, either good or bad, that her parents taught her about money, she said it would be something around work ethic because you do reap what you sow. If you have a good work ethic, you will ultimately be rewarded. Working as they do in the horticulture sector, the work never ends and you have to slog it out on many occasions. 
pushing on is a good characteristic, but she does wonder if it also could hold her back. Teaching is relentless pressure, and she does find herself wondering sometimes if she couldn't take the pressure away from herself and apply her skills elsewhere and be a little happier. But her career choice does mean she is in a position to teach others about money, and she does take that opportunity with the kids she teaches. The question I usually ask about what she would do if she could retain all of the knowledge she has today regarding money and could go back to her 15-year-old self and start again, it was a good one, given that she teaches that age group. She talks to them about starting to pay attention to their money right now. She has done quite a few KiwiSaver presentations at school right as the students are starting to turn 18, explaining how the system works for them. She has talked about compound interest and how to make a budget. She shares the basics, but her main message is telling them to pay attention to your money now because time is on their side here. If they learn how to manage their putia, her openness has led to a lot of one-on-one conversations with students and even with some of their parents who have approached her. Speaking of the basics being so important, I asked Danny what her three main financial habits are, the things which she just automatically does. Number one, she has as many transactions automated as she can. And she credits that as one of the biggest keys to success because it gives her consistency. And while she monitors it, she doesn't have to think about it and it doesn't take up much headspace. Number two, she bikes and walks everywhere now that they have moved closer to work and outdoor activities. And number three, they don't eat out a lot. There is little fritter factor when it comes to Kai. Instead, they cook dinner at home, part of which then becomes lunch for the next day. And what about her money elevator pitch or that sentence that would sum up her approach to money? She referenced the Pareto principle, which is also known as the 80-20 rule. The theory maintains that 80% of the output from a given situation or system is determined by 20% of the input, or you get 80% of your results from 20% of your effort. So if you focus on a few tasks of the highest importance, you will get the most results from that. And that was their thought with reducing their mortgage by moving. One move had huge results, slashing their mortgage by $90,000. As far as resources that she would recommend to you and I, she said that she read a lot of books in the beginning, but they all started to become quite similar. The standout was J.L. Collins, A Simple Path to Wealth, because he breaks down investing in such a simple way. And this very podcast and all the fantastic people who have shared the nuts and bolts of their putia has been immensely helpful. The podcast Choose FI, Afford Anything by Paula Pant, plus Stacking Benjamins, she loves all those, and she recommends the website interest.co.nz, plus she enjoys following people on Instagram who are tracking their journey to FI. Now, before I wrap up, I've got another quick message from the fabulous sponsor of today's show, Pocketsmith. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Now, have you been keeping track of time here? In 2016, Danny was living pay to pay. And while she would have had some equity in the house, she would have had no clue really about how much it was. And she had a variety of consumer debts to her name. Fast forward five to six years and she has investments of over $150,000, money in the bank for emergencies, money in the bank for short and medium term uses, and a half share in a home where she is gaining a little more equity with each passing month. 
This is why I do this podcast, so I can talk to people like Danny. She is someone who just decided one day that being scared about money will no longer be her reality. So using her own words, she sorted her crap out. Worrying about money no longer keeps her awake at night. Her own systems and processes now mean that money just chugs along in the background and she can focus on other things, like working on her PB as a runner. Whereas she used to refer to herself as a spender, now she would call herself a value spender, who was quite happy to spend $200 on a pair of running shoes and equally happy to pay $8 for a work shirt. She is spending money in a way that aligns with her values and her goals because she has worked out what they are now instead of just wandering through life financially. Her and her partner have been together a long time now, and although they had their financial awakening at different times, and it took a long time, many years in fact, as individuals they have found the balance in their respective budgets to live a good life. Each seem to have found their niche, and each have a collective goal in mind. And I think that most importantly is that Correro around money is now a free-flowing conversation, which is what any good relationship needs as its cornerstone. So finally, thank you, Danny, for speaking with me and sharing all the details that you have. I know there will be a lot of people listening to this that really relate to your situation and will take a lot from it to help them on their own journey. Enjoy the running too. If you stumble across any great podcasts, let me know and I'll use them to keep me company on my own runs. So that's all from me this week. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And I would love it if you could give me a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast. And please do share it with your friends. It's the best way that people can learn about the podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Happy saving.